0: Very, very pleased to welcome you all here to um documenting the olympics and, and paralympics um of course I'm kind of welcoming you to the to the british library in spirit more more than in person um unfortunately it would have been lovely to to have seen everybody um in in the room in the room today i think i think the the um the advantage of, of being remote is is we can probably fit more people in um than we would have done had we been in the building i think so it's it's really lovely that we've had such a great great response um, uh, to to our, to our workshop and 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 also um, really looking forward to um, the conversations a couple of days. Um, so um this is a two two day event. We've got two afternoons, um which is being organized um, by by the British Library and also by the um, British Society of Sports History. Um, the International Centre for Sports History and Culture at Montfort University, um, and School of Advanced Study, University of London with the um, Cleopatra project. Um, and you can see, you can see some of the logos and information just on, on, on the slide there. And I'm sure we'll be hearing a lot more about um, Cleopatra and, and, and the institutions involved um, throughout the next few days. Um so uh just a reminder for what we've got on today, um those are our panels. So we're starting off with um the view the e from researchers, um then we'll have a little break and we've got the first of our um galleries, libraries, archives and museums um panel. Um so just to remind everyone that the, the aim really kind of as we were putting together um these two days um was uh, to provide an opportunity to bring together um, those those sort of Two parts: so the collections uh, that libraries, archives, and other institutions build and hold and make available, uh, relating to um, Olympics and Paralympics, and maybe a little wider around um, sports, sport history, of international sporting events, um, and then the, the the research that happens and 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 the way that those collections are used. Um, and, and interrogated. And I imagine there's going to be a little bit of kind of like crossover between the panels as, as, as we kind of consider um, those, those those two parts um, um, throughout throughout the next two afternoons. And it's really lovely to be able to bring together kind of a wide range of, of, of people working um, both in those sectors, but also people with just you know kind of those of you who are here because you've got an interest in in sport and sport history. Um, it's Really, really wonderful to have you here, and 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 to see how how the conversations will develop. Um, just to say, it's really great um, that we are that we've been involved as as, as the British Library, um, particularly around an event that looks at kind of um, sport sport history and and the collections, as that's something that that we have looked at and worked on within our collections um, over a number of years now. And there's a number of things. Um, that I wanted just to kind of mention that are relevant in our collections. I know um, we might take a different approach when, when we come to the um, galleries, libraries, archives and museums um, section later on. So I'm going to kind of steal sort of a bit of privilege and, and talk a bit about our collections around um, the next sort of five minutes or so before the panels start. Um, so my job is kind of based with the sort of 21st century collections from from the UK and Ireland and we, and we received those mostly under something called legal deposit um, which we probably don't talk very much about but it's really powerful and it allows us to reflect all the aspects of life in, in in the UK through published communications and we don't kind of prejudge what's important or what's relevant there so we collect across a whole range of materials And I was thinking about how this might be relevant um, to the Olympics and Paralympics and was just thinking back to the the, the 2012 London Games and and the sorts of things that we had there. So we had kind of the official reports from the organising committee, hundreds of those. Um, We also had things like spectator guides that were produced, guides to the Olympic Village and the Paralympic Village. Um children's children's literature. So um, there's a book by Michael Morpurgo that introduces the um the two characters for the 2012 games. Um also, you know, kind of but then sort of thinking more widely around kind of sport and sport history, the whole kind of like manuals, how-to guides, rule book, magazines, everything around the kind of documenting um the, the experience of, of of the games, but kind of sporting more widely. Um Really relevant are our news collections, course kind of newspapers, not just national press but regional press as well. Um much of that, um, well, more more and more of that is now kind of available online through the British newspaper archive, um, which is free to search and 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 more and more we're trying to make available freely accessible through that. Um so you can and and that focus again um, has a really kind of good strong focus on, on regional. Press in in the UK as well. So you can kind of see how events, particularly kind of events that are reported on one way nationally, may be kind of reported on differently when we get down to kind of a more local level. Um, And also um, available in the library are kind of off air recording um, of news in the UK. So we record about kind of 20 hours a day um, from different news channels and have done since 2005. And and we kind of run kind of that's the right way around, speech-to-text um, uh, kind of programmes on it. So the, 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 the recordings we make are kind of searchable in our reading rooms. And I also wanted to highlight our sound collections as well. We have huge, huge the, the library includes kind of the archive of recorded sound, which includes um, commercially made recordings, but also um, field recordings, and I thought particularly interesting oral histories. So we are kind of very closely linked to the oral history society. Um, And and, and this is one that I found that I think particularly relevant, the the oral history of British athletics, um, which was conducted towards the end of the 20th century and includes many people who were involved um, in the Olympics and Paralympic games um, as kind of competitors, organizers, and so on. So people like Sebastian Coe, Daley Thompson, uh, Jackie Egypom, Baroness Kenny
1: Gray-Thompson, um, and Danny
0: creates there as well. Um, a lot of our kind of thinking for, for this event, actually, and I should say, should say, um, Helena Byrne, who's our um, curator for web archives. He's, he's here today at the conference, um, was, was, was one of the, one of the people kind of the brains behind, um, our, our two day conference. Um, and, and we were kind of Putting this together, as we were thinking about our, our kind of web archive collections, um, and for those of you who don't know about the UK Web Archive, um, it really is kind of what it says. It's an attempt to collect as much as we can of um, kind of the UK web space, so all that kind of variety of communication, expression, viewpoints, experience that that that, that comes through day-to-day um, encounters and writing online. That's um, often kind of quite quite um quite fleeting in its way um, we try to collect through kind of automated processes but also through kind of our kind of curatorial curator led collections um, where we like to kind of you know, we really do try to engage as widely as possible for um, nominations and suggestions of what it is we should be collecting and if you go to the, the link you can see there webarchive.org.uk um, you can find under our th- thematic collections, um, a variety of, kind of sports um, collections around kind of international events, um, but also kind of across the range of sporting activity um, in the UK and Ireland. And We also collaborate internationally as well. So we work with the in- International Internet Preservation Consortium um, to build collaborative collections. So the UK Web Archive focuses on um, UK web space. The collaborative collections we really do try to reach across the world and we we work with our um with our friends on the IPC but again we also try to reach out more widely and we've been involved in collecting around Olympics and Paralympic um starting with the 2010 Winter Olympics and then from 2012 every summer winter every summer and winter Olympics and Paralympics we try to put a collection as well as a separate collection that that brings together the um, Olympic and Paralympic committees, and we just started the um, collections on the 2020 Tokyo Games. um, That's being led by a um, a curator from Old Dominion University in the United States, Um, and I've just put sort of more information at the bottom of that slide, both for kind of where you can access these collections at the archive site, But also, um, our Twitter account for the IFPC, where you'll be finding, you'll be hearing more um, about the the care collecting very soon. Um, Just a note on using our collections. So, for for all the things I've talked about, kind of the discovery, so being able to actually find out what's in our collections, you can do using our website, um, bl.uk. If you follow the catalogues and collections link, you'll be able to get through to our. um, our library catalogue, but also a description of um, things like our sound collections um, through to kind of archive web collections and so on. Um, really important at the moment is, is the tab marked visit, um, given the kind of the, the changing times we're in right now. Um, the, the information about kind of you know kind of how to book um, space to come into the library, where how we're kind of managing space to keep everyone safe. Um what to do about kind of registering for a reader pass all of that is 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 there and it's kind of changing quite rapidly at the moment so do do, do keep keep an eye on that around kind of how to do book space how to get a reader's pass um and how to find out more about what we have um Our collections um are free to access and open to anybody interested in research and and we would re- and you go interested finding out more um about, uh, particularly for, for today, for kind of sport history, Olympics, Paralympics, we'd, we'd love, love you to, to find out more and, and, and use our collections and let us know um, how, how you are, um, how you're getting along with them. Um, so I think that is all from me. Um, as I say, really looking forward to our, to our discussions today. I'll um, just stop sharing my screen. And I'm going to hand over now to Heather Dichter, who's going to introduce our first panel. Um, Over to you, Heather.
2: Wonderful. Um, Thank you so much, Ian. And I'm really excited to chair this research panel today. Um, So we've got three really excellent papers. And first up is uh, Luke J. Harris, who is an honorary research fellow within the Department of History at the University of Birmingham. His monograph, Britain in the Olympic Games, 1908 to 1920, Perspectives on Participation and Identity, was published in 2015. Um, He's published on a range of subjects within sport history, including editing a recent special edition of Midlands History on sport in the Midlands. So um, take it away, Luke, and we look forward to hearing your presentation.
3: Thanks very much, Heather. Right. Um, well, thanks very much for the opportunity to speak and share my research at this event. It's, it's a real honor to speak at um, such an event with, along, so many, uh, along so, much, so many esteemed colleagues. Um, my papers will f- focus on my research into Britain's Olympic story between 1908 and 1920. Uh, this is a focus of my PhD and some of my research since. Uh, through different archives and archive material, I plan to give some insight into Britain's Olympic identity during this period. This paper would demonstrate British insecurities about their position in not just international sport, but also the world. Britain, the self-proclaimed home of modern sport, encountered uh, during this period threats to its status across sport in general and at the Olympic games. And it was undoubtedly overtaken by its fiercest rivals on the world stage. This resulted in some attempts to reform British sports and its philosophy, which will be demonstrated here. The 1998 Olympics was hosted by London and given to the British Olympic Association at just two years' notice. To ensure the games were well prepared, the individual sporting associations were recruited to organise events. Such a feat of organisation proved a source of British pride, as these were the largest Olympics in the IOC's short history and still the longest games ever held. The marathon race is a primary example of this. A new event to the British, the Amateur Athletic Association decided not to hold a single trial, as it did for other track and field events, but rather a series of trials across the country organized by leading clubs, with a primary focus on the race organized by the Polytechnic Harriers, who were responsible for organizing the Olympic Marathon. Birmingham's Birchfield Harriers was one of the clubs asked to organize a trial race, and evidence of the organization uh, uh, Organised or required for this event is present in their archives. The archives reveal that the race was first mentioned at, uh, was first mentioned as late as January nineteen o eight, and initially favoured a route between Worcester and Birmingham. But at the last minute, the route was changed to begin in Coventry and conclude at the Hawthorns, the home of West Bromwich Albion Football Club. And the race map is shown on screen there. The tough terrain and a distance of 25 miles made this the toughest of the trial races, meaning there was little doubt about the suitability of the race winner Jack Price of Small Heath Harriers to represent Britain in the Olympic Marathon. Price, from Hales Owen, was uh, was by trade a foundry worker and was not able to fund his own preparations for the marathon. On screen is an open letter from the archive, which demonstrates the attempts made to ensure uh, Price had the best chance to succeed. It asked local clubs and individuals to contribute towards towards a subscription for him to to undergo a special course of training. Further evidence in the archive and local press demonstrate that money was given for his train fare, a night in a hotel before the race, and a week's training with a coach in the Cotswolds prior to the marathon. Such funding was possible through local clubs' donations, including Birchfield, as well as several individuals. Price, a figure whose exploits as a marathon runner and pedestrian distance runner has become of immense interest to me, was not successful at the 1908 Olympic marathon. He dropped out after just uh, 17 miles after going too quickly on a day described as tropical by the press. Despite the failure of Price and the other British athletes, the drama and conclusion of the race, resulting in the disqualification of the first man to uh, pass the finishing line, Durando Petrie, helped to popularise distance racing in Britain during the Edwardian period, a topic which I've been attempting to look in, more into. At the 1908 Olympics, Britain was rather outclassed in track and the field events by the United States of America, who won 34 medals, including 16 golds, compared to only 17 medals for Britain, of which seven were gold. A particular source of poor performance were the field events, where Britain's sole two medals came from Irish athletes. The consequence was this was at the beginning of the sp- at the beginning of um, the spring of 1910, measures were put in place in an attempt to improve Britain's field events performance. The most notable aspect of this was the formation of the Amateur Field Events Association, for which, sadly, and I really regret this, there's no archive material available, although its early ventures are well told in the press. The, uh, the efforts of the other bodies involved with Um, improving field events are to be found within archive material such as the work of the Midland Counties Amateur Athletic Association. These archives are to be found within the Midlands Athletic Archive at the University of Birmingham and demonstrate the motivations for improving British performance which are partly demonstrated on screen but also the efforts that were made in attempt to reverse British fortunes. The initial focus was giving opportunities for athletes in the disciplines um, on a more regular basis, as it was commonplace for weight-throwing events in particular not to be included in many athletics programmes, and also to provide money for much-needed equipment. While there was certainly plentiful enthusiasm for improvement, there was initial, there was um, very uh, little initial improvement, as some new, uh, with some new competitions organised. This included that um, all events Olympic field events have been included in the amateur athletic Association Championships for the first time in 1912. The problem facing organizations such as the Midland Counties and the Amateur Field Events Association was the lack of of interest in field events, and this resulted in few entries in the new competitions, while equipment remained in short supply, as was the knowledge and expertise in training athletes. These factors ensured that field events, particularly the throwing events, remained uh, remained at the periphery of British athletics, arguably up to the current day in some rowing events. Bars in this collection demonstrate the attempts to bring about change and also the issue in bringing about such radical change in philosophy and practice in British athletics. Success required investment and patience, two things missing in the administrator's eyes. While the 1908 Olympics was a significant turning point in British interest in Olympic Games, the nation's performance in Stockholm four years later was perhaps the most significant in terms of its impact on British philosophy towards the Olympics. Following the Games games where Britain performed particularly poorly, there were those who wished to drop out of the movement, while others wanted to adopt the so-called professional approaches that other countries were. It was those advocating for the professional approach of organised coaching given by professional coaches that won the day. In order to to propagate the effort, the British Olympic Council established the Special Committee for the Olympic Games of Berlin. This was made up of 11 men, comprised of leading amateur sports administrators and Sherlock Holmes creator Sir Arthur Conan Doyle. Papers relating to this are available within the British Olympic Association archive contained at the University of East London and these explain the desire for individual sports to formulate their own training programs. I found an example of the individual training programs that were put in place at the University of Westminster Archives, which contains the papers of the Polytechnic Harriers. The images on screen contain the minutes of just some of the reflections of the training from the Polytechnic's chief trainer, Sam Musabini, made famous by Chariots of Fire and himself a professional coach. His primary focus appears to be on track and field events, but his work included in organizing sessions for gymnasts, tennis players, and cyclists, as detailed on screen. Uh, Such meeting minutes give details not only of the activities taking place, with the training taking place at several locations across London, but also in regards to field events, the ruthlessness of coaching with those. Who showed no signs of special aptitude or progress should be eliminated as far as personal coaching was concerned as demonstrated in the middle picture there. Further evidence of Britain's changing attitude to coaching and to athletics. Owing to the outbreak of war in 1914, the impact of these changes was not seen at the 1916 Olympics but owing to the work of such men as Mussabini and also Walter Knox the Canadian professional athlete who became Britain's first Olympic athletics coach in 1914, there was undoubtedly a revolution in Britain's approach to coaching and training at the Olympic Games during this period. Water polo was one of the few areas of success at the 1908 and 1912 Olympics, where Britain won gold medals on both occasions. A visit to the British uh, to British Swimming's headquarters at Sport Park in Loughborough allowed me to discover about it by the manner in which Britain's teams were chosen. A particular use were the additions of the Annie produced Amateur Swimming Association handbook. These explained the selection process for the water polo team, as demonstrated on screen. The first was a trial between a team comprised of Northern England and Southern England, from which an English team was determined, and this took on a combined team from the other three nations. This might suggest an English bias, but considering the fact that since the first international between the nations of Britain began in 1898, England had lost just three times in 34 matches, with one draw, indicating almost total dominance over Ireland, Scotland and Wales. The Amateur Swimming Association's Olympic Swimming Committee was comprised of five members of England, with one each from Ireland and Wales. Funny enough, and strangely enough rather, um, no mention of a Scottish representative whatsoever. The archival material from this period indicates largely unity for a British team, I'm talking largely about not just from this archive, but other archive material that I've come across. There were some desires for Scottish and Irish teams for the 1908 Olympics, and some dissatisfaction from some Irish athletes and sections of the, of the nationalist Irish pe- pe- press. Excluding this, the nations of Britain wanted to come together for the greater good. or well, they seemingly uh, presented this image at least. Although there was certainly a pride in the performance of men, such as Welshman and Paolo Radmilovic, who won four Olympic gold medals, including two in water polo, the primary focus was on the achievements of Britain as a whole. Like many of the sports in Stockholm, the performance of Britain swimmers, both male and female, was disappointing. It was also intended to put in place in measures to improve the 1916 Olympics. The quote from the Amateur uh, Swimming Association's AGM suggests some arrogance on the part of the administrators, as is shown on screen, uh, but there was also a desire to improve through training and preparation. British attitudes between 1912 and 1914 were undoubtedly changing not only in athletics but widely across the Olympic sphere. I couldn't finish my paper without speaking about the impact the newspaper material has had on my research, as without the coverage offered within the national, local and sporting press my research would be a lot more incomplete and and lack the necessary comments and opinion. Following the Great War, Britain found itself short on money and combined but this was the desire to return to more traditional visions of British amateurism. Gone was the desire for professional coaching, and an amateur at- attitude was certainly prominent, as reflected in other areas of society. Gone were the pre-war ideals of professional-style coaching and organised preparations. This, partially, owed to the sparsity of money and facilities that were available, but there was also a desire to forget the pre-war period. To conclude, my research has relied on sources from many archives, some of which have been mentioned here. As individual archives, they've been fa- uh, given some fantastic insight into Britain's Olympic involvement. Despite apparent national apathy to the Games during this period, they reveal a, na- uh, a real passion for improving the performance of Britain's athletes and also for competing at the Games, and a generally organised, a coherent attempt to make an improvement. Owing to funding, expertise and ultimately circumstance with the outbreak of war, the improvements desired throughout my research were not to come to fruition. The attempts at change demonstrate a realisation that sport had now become a global phenomenon and that other nations had taken training and coaching to a new level and that Britain needed to amend its own practices. Thanks very much.
2: Thank you very much, Luke. Uh, We greatly appreciated your um, paper, especially, as you said, in between teaching uh, lessons today. Um, So next up on our panel is um, Ian Britton, who is an Associate Professor of Research at the Center for Business and Society at Coventry University, where he specializes in sociological and historical aspects of disability and Paralympic sports. He's been researching the Paralympic history for over 20 years, and has done work in this area area for a variety of organizations, including the National Paralympic Heritage Trust, United States Olympic and Paralympic Museum, Paralympics Australia Paralympic History Project, and Harder Than You Think films for the recent Netflix documentary, Rising Phoenix. So welcome, Ian.
4: Thank you, Heather. Um, So hi, everybody. Um, I have to say I won't actually be presenting a piece of research today. Maybe I misunderstood what was wanted of me, but I'm going to actually talk about a Paralympic archive. Not an institutional one, but rather my own that I've collected over the last 20 years. And in doing so, I aim to highlight what I've learned in the process about Paralympic historical materials and information, and what having my own archive has helped me achieve. Throughout the slides, I've used images of materials from my collection, but these represent just a tiny fraction of what I have. I'll start with a very brief overview of how I perceive things to have changed over the last 20 years. Then I'll talk about how I got started and some of the things I've learned along the way. I'll then describe some of the opportunities this has led to for me and some of the things I've used my archives for before finishing with some conclusions. Obviously in 15 minutes, this will only be a whistle stop tour. So I guess trying to put things in a nutshell, one of the overarching things I've realized over the last 20 years, if I go back to the late nineties, early two thousands, a lot of Paralympic material was simply being thrown away. It was going to landfill sites. It was going into rubbish bins. Nobody ever thought it would be important. If we fast forward to today, we've now got books being produced on the subjects. We've got heritage centres and museums being opened in various countries around the world. We've got specific Paralympic history projects going on, such as the one in Australia. And for a certain number of organisations, Paralympic history is a, a relatively new but increasingly important source of income for them particularly sort of films and video archives etc so how did i get started well i've always been interested in sports history i started out as an olympic historian collecting olympic material i'm still a life member of the international society of olympic historians um but with the onset of my phd in 1999 i Set out because it was it was about Paralympics and disability sport. I set out to do a chapter on Paralympic history, and I soon realized I sort of needed to go to a hundred different sources just to make a fairly sketchy picture of one individual Paralympic Games. And I realized that there was a, a big gap in the sports history field that potentially could be filled. And I was very lucky in my first key academic job after my PhD, I was a, an Olympic and para, a, re, a postdoc research fellow in Olympic and Paralympic studies and had a very generous boss who allowed me to travel to host cities and archives all over the world um, and visit individual athletes from early games um, to interview them, to uh, copy materials, etc., to gather as much information as I could. And this raised my awareness even further of some of the issues that were apparent in trying to document Paralympic history, which I'll come on to shortly. So I basically started collecting materials and data, and that's both original material and copied, facsimile copies, um, including buying items off well-known internet auction sites. Um, And I used to travel everywhere with a laptop and a scanner, which included the ability to scan negatives and slides. So when I visited early athletes and interviewed them, I would then, uh, any material that they'd got, I would take a copy of. Um, And I now probably own one of the largest private archives in the world for Paralympic and disability sport-related material. It covers everything, posters, programmes, medals, results, reports, kits you name it. I mean, my house looks a bit like a museum, if I'm honest. Um, So what have I learned from that process? Well, the first, and I guess the most important thing is that no one ever thought the Paralympic Games would ever become the phenomenon it has. Hence, you know, why a lot of material was thrown away. Um, And this did lead to organisations such as NPCs and individual athletes and their families throwing stuff away. You know, the number of athletes I visited or, or families of athletes who just said, well, we even threw their medals away because we never thought they would be of any value or any importance. Um, I also found out the Rome 1960 archive was destroyed in a fire um, at the uh, rehabilitation centre in Ostia. So that makes information and material from 1960 particularly scarce. And some organisations are now frantically trying to recreate their history. I know I went and visited the Dutch National Paralympic Committee about 10 years ago, and they had moved offices three times and downsized each time. And to make space, they'd thrown away all of their historical material and were now frantically trying to get hold of ex-athletes, etc., trying to gather that history back again. Um, Another thing I should say is um, seems a bit strange, but don't trust the IPC results database prior to 1992. It's like Swiss cheese. Um, the number of and, and that's not totally their fault, although I have provided them with information to fill some of those gaps and they haven't used it. Um, a lot of the early data and material from the games, including results, was incomplete to say the least. Um, And so you wouldn't know the team names in the wheelchair basketball because they would just give the result as Great Britain versus France. And you wouldn't know who played for them. So you wouldn't know who got the medals within a particular team. So there are a a lot of issues in trying to recreate accurately that history. As the Paralympic Games have increased in in importance, however, there's been a massive upswing in the interest in their history. And this has led to a huge increase, from my perspective, for instance, in prices of items being sold online. I mean, just as an example, the two medals you can see in the bottom left-hand corner, they are a winner's medal from the Stoke Mandeville Games in 1960, and next to it is the winner's gold medal from the Rome Paralympic Games for uh, table tennis, um, won by Michael Beck. They actually came out of a house clearance in uh, southern England and I bought them online. Now those would probably cost me at least 10 times what I paid for them 10 years ago. Um, So, you know, I guess, you know, as things increase in importance, more people want them this is the kind of thing you see but obviously it then makes it difficult for museums and heritage collections to get hold of these things because you know they've got limited budgets but certainly there have been you know museums and heritage centres beginning to spring up related to Paralympic history around the world and as I'm just about to come on to you know, as a result of my, all my collections, etc., this has led to numerous jobs and other opportunities for me. So what are some of those opportunities? Well, I've, I've published a number of books, being able to use uh, a lot of the materials that I've collected to, um, you know, give visual uh, references for the, for the things that I write about. Um, I've been asked to fact check Paralympic Museum content descriptions, such as the new um, Paralympic section of the US Olympic and Paralympic Museum in uh, Colorado Springs. I fact checked everything that has gone into that museum. So hopefully nobody finds any mistakes. Um, I was a ceremonies consultant for the London 2012 Paralympic opening ceremony and provided some of the images that went behind Seb Coe and uh, Phil Craven when they were doing their opening uh, addresses. I even assisted IPC to prove that a Hungarian athlete had won a medal in 1976 that then entitled him to a government pension. The reason that was an issue is quite interesting. It's because Hungary withdrew from the Games after a few days in protest At the fact that there was a mixed race South African team competing and the organisers decided to remove all Hungarian results um, and discard their medals and so I was able to prove that this gentleman did win a medal and that got him a government pension. I'm the uh, International Wheelchair and Amputee Sports Federation Heritage Advisor so now whenever they get historical questions from media, etc., they all get passed to me and I answer any um, inquiries. I commented on two early cuts of the Netflix documentary Rising Phoenix. Um, I was interviewed for an Olympic Channel documentary on blind athletes called, and their guide, sorry, called Invisible Bond that will actually be released tomorrow. So if you watch out on social media, there will be a link going around that will enable anybody to watch that documentary. Uh, it's also led to uh, an arts and humanities research application that i put in recently as PI, along with two colleagues from Coventry and RAF from Bournemouth. Uh, and we are partnered with the National Paralympic Heritage Trust, the British Paralympic Association and Sporting Heritage, with the aim of interviewing 300 British Paralympians from 1960 to the current day to get their perspective on whether Paralympic and disability sport really does increase opportunities for inclusion of disabled people within the wider society. Um, I also use my collection to put visual images into a... Journal of Olympic History paper which was awarded paper of the year for 2019 which was around the genesis and meaning of the term Paralympic Games and I've also produced a number of country Paralympic participation and medalist files one of which for Great Britain the British Paralympic Association are now using to set up a database of British Paralympians which they will then use in various communication and other uh, ideas that they've got for promoting Paralympic sport within Great Britain. Um, I've also used my archives, obviously, for publications. I'm not going to go through all of these, but just to highlight uh, two or three. The top one, well, it doesn't even look like it's about the Paralympics. It's in Business History Journal, but it's actually about the development of the Paralympic movement from 1940 to 1980. Um, and the reason I highlight this is because business history likes new sources of information and the source of information for this is actually over those 20 years, I've put together a facsimile set, a complete set of The cords, which is the um, newsletter that started at Stoke Mandeville in 1944 and ran to 1983. Um, and it now I think it runs to about three and a half thousand pages of copies that I've got bound up in seven different files. And we've used that as our data source for the paper. Um, anybody who's interested in the kinds of issues I've, I've tried to highlight today. Probably a good paper is the one in the International Journal of Heritage Studies, The marginala- Marginalization of Paralympic Heritage, which I wrote with Greg Gramshaw and Sean Gammon back in 2013. And going back to what I highlighted earlier, um, one of the really interesting things that came out for me was the role of the Paralympic movement in Uh, the sort of anti-apartheid movement uh, around South Africa in sport and it's not a well-known fact that um, you know South Africa actually competed with a mixed race team at the Paralympic Games right the way up until 1976 and it's quite an interesting story. So just a few conclusions to finish up. Um, I think As I said, there's a lot of uh, sort of heritage centers and museums being set up, but their focus, and quite rightly probably, is more on objects. It's about the visual and the tactile sometimes. Um, And so there aren't that many sources for people who are interested in factual research and knowledge production. If you want a set of results or you want, there's very few places that you can now go to currently to gather that information um, and do that kind of historical research about the Paralympic Games, um, particularly the early games. Um, as I've already pointed out, you know, it appears to me the more important an event or sport becomes, the greater effort appears to be made to actually collect and preserve its history. Um, and I don't think you know, I I probably wouldn't have the collection I've got, um, and probably wouldn't be sitting here talking to you today, if the Paralympic movement hadn't reached the level it's reached. Um, I still think there's a long way to go with Paralympic heritage and history collection. I think potentially time may also be running out with regard to some of the early Games to collect all the information possible. And I think there are a number of errors claimed as facts still by key bodies by, such as IPC. Um, and as an example, just a simple example of this, they still claim, despite me telling them multiple times, that there were 23 countries competing in Rome in 1960. They claim the same for Tokyo 1964. Well, I've got both of the official reports that list all the countries that competed and it's 21 in both cases. So there are still these little errors claimed as facts floating around out there. And, you know, to sum up, there's still lots and lots of work to be done. Thank you very much.
2: Thank you very much, Ian. Um, Your paper was great, totally appropriate for um, today. Um, I know that there's at least one question uh, that's put into the chat. So just a reminder to anyone else, um, if you do have questions, please feel free to throw them into the chat box for us to um, go through after all three presentations are done, um, or you can also um, ask your question live as well. Um, So I am pleased to introduce um, the two authors of the second paper, Um, Dr. Nikki Kucher is based at the Department of Sport and Event Management and is the program leader for the BSc Honors in Sport Management at Bournemouth University. Nikki's research focuses on Olympic studies, mega sport event volunteering and participation legacies, volunteer management, sport program evaluation, and sustainability. Nikki is also the principal investigator of a project funded by the Olympic Studies Center of the International Olympic Committee that aims to explore and evaluate the volunteering legacy of the Athens 2004 Games. Nikki also holds practical firsthand experience in sport event management, having had the opportunity to work for the London 2012 Games Organizing Committee as a scheduler at the Fleet Transport Department. Um, Her co-author, Jeff Kohey, is a senior lecturer in sport management and policy in the School of Sport and Exercise Sciences at the University of Kent. His research covers the historical, political, and educational aspects of the Olympic movement, sport organizations, and sport heritage, and museums. He is also the director and research lead at the National Basketball Heritage Center.
5: So, um, good afternoon, everyone. Uh, Thank you for uh, giving us the platform to uh, talk about this uh, exciting uh, uh, one-year project that is uh, being funded by the Olympic Studies Center uh, of uh, the IOC. So uh, broadly, the aims of uh, the project is to uh, examine the volunteering legacies of uh, Athens 2004 uh, Games and uh, actually uh, empowering uh, communities through volunteering and encouraging community volunteering is one of uh, the IOC priority fields in uh, uh, the organization's mission to foster the game sustainability. Uh, So therefore, this uh, particular project actually meets uh, the IOC targets in uh, uh, two ways. First of all, we uh, focus on a, an under-researched uh, UMI games edition by emphasizing on uh, Athens 2004. And second, we are looking into an intangible UMIC legacy by uh, specifically focusing on um, um, sport uh, volunteering and uh, volunteering legacies. So uh, in terms of uh, uh, the context of uh, this uh, particular Uh, research, Uh, the Athens 2004 Games have become entrenched in uh, contemporary Greek identity and uh, the memories of uh, uh, local Athenians. And uh, there is only anecdotal evidence that actually suggests that uh, the Athens 2004 uh, volunteer program was deemed as one of the main successes of uh, the event in uh, driving social development and uh, resurrecting national spirit. Uh, However, there is lack of uh, primary data with uh, volunteers, civil society and third sector organizations to support this debate and also a disconnect between uh, official Olympic legacy imperatives, uh, sport volunteering and sport promotion development, as well as um, uh, the individual and collective experiences uh, of uh, the local population in uh, Greece. As such, and given the above uh, context and the issues, our uh, project uh, aims to actually identify whether the, the games had an impact in encouraging further volunteering and uh, uh, the enduring effects of uh, the Athens games in. Uh, volunteer and sports sector in uh, Greece and therefore we would like to actually uh, consider uh, the current experiences of uh, Athens 2004 volunteers to uh, see whether involvement with uh, the Athens games actually inspired them to um, be engaged in the future volunteering and also to identify best practices and uh, retention strategies uh, that uh, were employed by other uh, organizations after the games. Uh, also, we would like to account for uh, broader socioeconomic and political factors because uh, Greece in recent years uh, has faced uh, uh, several social challenges, such as uh, the influx of uh, migrants and refugees. And therefore, uh, perhaps this is something that perhaps had an influence in the development of uh, the volunteer sector in uh, the country. Uh, So, this particular uh, project actually follows a qualitative uh, case study uh, research design that uh, has uh, also a mixed method approach and uh, is uh, divided into two phases. So in the first phase, actually, uh, we conducted a comprehensive uh, review and archival uh, research of uh, selected documents, such as, for example, the BID file, uh, some policy reports, some uh, media reports that uh, talked about uh, the plans for uh, legacies, in particular, volunteering legacies from uh, the Olympic Games Organising Committee of Athens, and also other uh, selected documents from the local government. Also, that was uh, the foundation for us to identify relevant stakeholders that uh, we uh, wanted to later on uh, uh, approach in order to take part in our uh, uh, data collection process. Uh, Also, it's uh, worth to mention that uh, uh, the Olympic Study Center uh, brought us in touch with uh, the Hellenic Olympic Committee early on in uh, uh, the project and actually enabled us to um, have an initial conversation with uh, the President and the Secretary General of uh, the Hellenic Olympic Committee to discuss uh, uh, the project specifics, to identify opportunities for uh, collaboration, and also to uh, discuss how, for example, perhaps we could consult uh, the International Olympic Academy archives later on in the project, but also to further disseminate uh, the research outcomes uh, within uh, the wider uh, uh, sport volunteer uh, sector in Greece, but also uh, Um, to disseminate it more broadly. Uh, The second phase of the project actually includes online uh, qualitative surveys and uh, semi-structured interviews with um, uh, Athens 2004 volunteers members of uh, the organizing committee, sport governing bodies and uh, uh, local civil society organization uh, representatives, as well as uh, members from uh, the local government that uh, uh, are currently involved or were at the time of the games involved with uh, uh, the promotion of volunteering. Uh, In addition, our uh, first uh, plans was actually to conduct uh, this process face-to-face, the data collection, However, with COVID, uh, we uh, uh, we had to actually um, change our uh, initial plans and therefore uh, virtual uh, platforms actually enabled us to uh, carry out Uh, this uh, particular project effectively, and therefore we gave the opportunity to our participants to uh, be approached and uh, take part in the interviews uh, through virtual means, such as for example, um, uh, Microsoft Teams, uh, Zoom or uh, Skype. So later on, uh, we have a plan perhaps to uh, carry out uh, some of uh, the interviews uh, face to face. However, we need to uh, take into account uh, the public health and safety advice uh, at the time. Uh, so this is uh, our. Uh, this chart shows our project timelines and uh, key milestones. So as you can see here, uh, the um, uh, archival research and uh, the consultation of uh, the Olympic Study Centers uh, archives was the foundation for this uh, project. However, we could not go ahead as planned uh, with uh, uh, our visit to Lausanne because of uh, government restrictions, inhibiting travel and uh, data collection. Uh, And uh, therefore, as um, um, Olympic Studies Centre grant holders and uh, affiliated researchers, uh, we also had the opportunity through uh, the Olympic Studies Centre to uh, access uh, the um, uh, um olympic multimedia library and uh, the iuc collaboration environment uh, which is actually uh, enable us to uh, access some digital uh, resources that are relevant uh, for the project so now my uh, colleague uh, dr kohi will talk about uh, this particular process uh, uh, in consulting the archives
6: thank you very much nikki uh yes i um suppose um the focus here is just to give a bit of a flavor as to kind of some of the archives we looked at, but also some of the challenges and some of the issues uh, for both historians or fellow social science researchers or anyone potentially looking at putting in a, a future bid for one of the Olympic grant studies programs. And I guess that was really the starting point for um, our forays into the Olympic archive and the, and this what the study center held in their repository was. Part of the proposal required, in fact, an emphasis in those um, Olympic studies proposals requires you to identify uh, key resources right at the outset with your initial idea that you would like to draw upon and utilize uh, within the library collection, whether that be the World Olympic Library, the Multimedia Library, um, or the General Archival Collection at the Olympic Studies Centre in Lausanne. Uh, So we did a lot of initial forays into um, the online archive um, in preparing the proposal document. We also correlated this, uh, we sort of had to correlate this with what was also available online in other repo- repositories, for example, the LA84 Digital Library, or some of the other sport museum and archival um, libraries, also the British Library, for example, as well, too, um, to trying to see that there wasn't any uh, double up in the coverage of the archival material that we would focus on, or that we wouldn't be putting um, huge burden on the um study center staff to kind of help us find material that we could gather um elsewhere and also to maximize and make our time in the archive more efficient Uh, we had originally planned for um a a two-week stay in the archive to conduct the research obviously with the COVID implications we had to cut that that down to uh, one week and we shifted that also Um, to some point in the uh, forthcoming summer. Our original plan in the proposal document, as we specified, was to do um, uh, these archival uh, examinations early on in the process as a kind of scoping to try and find out a little bit more about some of the official discourses, some of the ideologies, um, some of the kind of the the way in which legacy was uh, both uh, evaluated or the volunteering legacy was both proposed and evaluated um, by the organizing committee however that's kind of changed um, in a way because we haven't been able to get access to some of the documents that we originally wanted because they haven't been um, easily accessible uh, from the archive from the electronic collection of the study center um, so despite the time change and despite the shifts we've had to make for COVID we have had a lot of advantages um, and it has been a beneficial process for us to go through um, for our project. As Nikki mentioned, uh, we've been trying to track not just the the legacy, or if there, if in doubt, there has been any sort of continuation of uh, uh, the effects of the Athens 2000 for Olympic games, but also to see the ways in which that um, particular moment in time has been utilized, is remembered, is sort of consolidated within sports organizations, within the sports sector in Greece, within kind of the community sports organizations, um, and also how that's fed into, you know, the way that the sport communities operate in Athens uh, today. So, Uh, We wanted to understand the underlying historical context, but it was very much about establishing what were some of the prevailing historical narratives in the archives, what was the kind of common thread in the language and the tone of the language, how was this being positioned, um, so that when we went and we undertook these subsequent uh, stakeholder interviews in the organizations, we could use this as a kind of a talking point and a conversation point to try and tease out some of these um, alternative narrative so we we did um uh, have a treasure trove of archives to um to start with at least forming our initial ideas uh for our research uh next slide please nikki Yeah, so as you can see here, just very quickly, I mean, you can go and find out. Our project uh, was specifically related to, obviously, Athens 2004. And again, we had some successes in terms of there were a good trench of um, available online reports that we could download. A lot of the official things like the official bid document, the legacy impact reports from the period immediately before, immediately after the Games. Uh, We were dealing with a fairly, uh, well, although we were dealing with a fairly er um, recent iteration, only 15 to 17 years ago, uh, the archiving and the, um, uh, the data gathering or the, the archival uh, collections have changed significantly in the IRC and the practices over time, uh, even just 17 years ago in Greece, a lot of some of the documents uh, weren't uh, kept systematically and they weren't kept robustly, so then those that were able to go to the archives in Lausanne are a bit patchy and although they have sort of the official uh, material from the local organizing committee to an extent. Uh, and also what the IRC has kept from from its own committee resources, there are a few gaps in the the collection. There are a number of uh, resources that you can identify online that we were able to look at, but then they haven't yet been digitized or they're not easily accessible from outside of Lausanne or outside of um, using the Olympic Studies archive. So we did encounter that as a difficulty. In addition, we then also tried to triangulate that with secondary Uh, reports, for example, existing scholarly publications um, and evaluation material um, as well. So there were sort of, uh, we had a good starting point, but we already recognized right from the outset that that there were going to be challenges to our access that weren't necessarily going to be eased by us uh, visiting the archives, or we were only going to get part of the way we were never going to get as a comprehensive picture. But that's sort of one of the issues that I will um, uh, conclude with uh, shortly. Uh, Next slide please Nikki. So this kind of gives you a bit of a flavor. Again, you don't have to be worried about too much of the detail, but kind of is just a bit of a snapshot of sort of the process by which you can kind of use their search engine. The web archiving, I think someone's mentioned in the chat, the web archiving with the Olympic Study Centre is fairly um, uh, recent or it's been updated successfully in the last few years. It's got certainly much better from when I first went um, 13 years ago um, in 2008 to Lausanne and was furiously working in the archives for four or five days Um, As well, there is a lot more content online, it is um, easier they've changed a lot of their digital interfaces, um, which has made kind of downloading and reading through if you're a fan of kind of these. um, Updated PDF readers or document readers you'll be you'll be in your elements, but I can understand that for those that aren't quite as familiar or quite as comfortable with this sort of archival digital archival research or don't have access to the to the right kind of technologies and resourcing, I can imagine that they would face significant um, challenges in this regard, um, particularly from researchers operating in the global south or areas um, where, for example, bandwidth, getting internet bandwidth for downloading some of these large documents is potentially quite difficult. So I think that is a challenge that is worth noting um, going forward and also for potential grants. At, yeah, next slide, please. Potential grant applicants who are looking at, at partnering with um, uh, fellow researchers in the Global South and elsewhere. But nonetheless, our efforts were really helped um, quite a lot by our initial, these formative discussions that we had with the Olympic Study Center. We were, and I have to say from the outset, as it says at the bottom, we were privileged in that we had priority access to the IRC Study Centre's team as grant holders. So we are also aware that if you, you know, haven't come in from the cold from outside, as I've done in the past, and I think as others have done here in this group, Uh, They are very helpful, but at the same time, they are a relatively small team um, and may not necessarily be able to give you the type of access or the time or attention, dedication to finding out or helping with your project as much as you might um, like, particularly uh, in COVID times if you're unable to to go there. But nonetheless, they were very helpful in sort of establishing what we wanted, laying out sort of the ground rules, um, some of the archival rules in terms about the legal um, uh, responsibilities and restrictions about using the archival material. Um, as well, um, and which uh, I was already kind of somewhat aware of having having done some research there previously, but sort of access and rights around um, the use of ph- photographic material, the use of sort of images and logos um, as well too. So it is worth, if you're considering using these archives to have a bit of a discussion uh, in the future. Um, I remember having a conversation when I was doing m- my PhD in 2008, 2007, um, and I didn't know necessarily what I wanted to find. And uh, you know they wanted me to specify exactly how I was going to use photographs in the PhD. Well, it was it was kind of impossible to know at that particular time. Uh, those rules have have changed, but it is worthwhile to have the have the discussions with them. I guess kind of overall with this, it was really difficult to know to determine uh, even today as we stand here how comprehensive their set of archives are. We've got a fairly good handle on the material that they've got related to. Um, both Athens 2004 and volunteering within that, but there are a lot of gaps. Uh, Next slide please. Uh, I guess one of the challenges I mentioned before is with the format and and some documents just don't download easily and not all of the documents that are identified that you can access easily. You do have to, as I mentioned before, go through password permissions which you can get if you are a um, a grant holder um, or go through the the study centre channels. Again, what isn't there, and I think this is really crucial, is a lot of the official correspondence, which is an embargo, the IRC have a, a 20 or 30 year embargo on a lot of their official documents, uh, particularly their committee meeting records, so for the fellow sport historians who like to get into a, a good committee, um, you know, a, a, a committee report that just isn't there or has not yet been um, digitized or archived as well, um, but what it is useful, however, was to be able to identify some of the key stakeholders. And again, right from the outset, the Study Centre recognised that, in fact, actually one of the reasons they don't have as a significant archive, particularly on Athens, is that they have had difficulties with getting archival documents from key organisations. Uh, the Hellenic Olympic Committee, but also um the ministry, the uh, the Athens municipal government, the local government, philanthropic organizations like the Bodosaki and the Stavros and the Arkos Fia- Foundation who worked with the um uh, in the delivery of volunteer programs. So until that information is forthcoming, um the archive is 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 very uh, incomplete in that regard. but nonetheless, it was very good because we could identify some of the key stakeholders and then in our subsequent sort of follow up with the stakeholder interviews we've been able to go and um, follow them up with the interviews for this for the second phase of our project. And there is a bit of that feedback and feed forward going on between the stakeholder interviews and then going back to check information in the documents as, as well. So to kind of wrap some of the, Yeah, next slide, Nikki, thank you. Uh, the learning lessons from, from the process so far for us uh, with the archives. There is fantastic information uh, within the archives if you're looking at particular iterations of the Games. They do have a Games um, and a thematic focus, so they'll, they'll focus on particular Summer Games or Youth Olympics or Winter Olympics, so it does mean that for some iterations of the Games, there is more than for others. Um, it is difficult to know whether we've we've got it all, particularly in terms of the official records as well. Um, And again, probably one of the biggest bugbears that we've got is that a lot of, again, unsurprising, a lot of the archival, official archival documents, the proposals, the evaluation reports, they're written um, for a public audience, they're written also for stakeholders and for sort of the evaluative uh, practices of the IOC and its partners, so they are very generalised, they don't necessarily contain a lot of the nitty gritty um, in terms of the nuances and specifics, um, some of the things that historians might be kind of after in terms of the depth. Which is where again the stakeholder mapping and kind of following up with some of these these interviews has really kind of helped us fill the gaps and kind of reveal some of these counter narratives. And these kind of alternative interpretations and experiences of the Athens 2004 legacy, which I think Nikki is now going to just briefly showcase with some of our stakeholder data, thank you.
5: Uh, thank you. So, just uh, uh, these are some of our uh, preliminary findings. Uh, as you can see here, uh, there are uh, there is some evidence that uh, uh, the volunteering program and uh, the um, Uh, The games actually inspired further volunteering uh, and uh, this uh, was evident by uh, making the structures and uh, pathways to volunteering in uh, Greece more accessible and more formal for uh, uh, volunteers to uh, just go in the sports sector but also in the wider uh, community. However, there was no evidence that this uh, was planned for uh, by the organizing committee or uh, the local government and this is something that we have seen in uh, subsequent uh, games editions such as, for example, in, uh, in London 2012. Uh, however, the situation in uh, Greece is uh, quite uh, promising at the moment in terms of uh, uh, the volunteering uh, opportunities that are available, even though there is uh, no institutional framework to uh, promote and support volunteering and link it to uh, wider employability initiatives. However, now volunteers are more aware of uh, how to get involved and where to go to to volunteer. And also there are uh, already some attempts to form partnerships between the public, uh, the private and uh, non-profit sector in order to uh, promote volunteering opportunities as part of their welfare and uh, social responsibility agendas. Uh, so to uh, to conclude uh, from uh, what we discussed today, uh, we believe that uh, this project uh, will inform and advance uh, knowledge and uh, Olympic policy and practice in uh, three key ways. First of all, uh, we uh, draw collectively in uh, volunteering stakeholder and legacy uh, theories in order to analyze volunteer experiences and uh, the Athens 2004 social legacies. Also, we offer an innovative uh, approach that combines multiple methods, such as, for example, Olympic uh, um, uh, conventional semi-structured interviews, uh, online surveys, and also archival research and analysis in order to provide a valuable model for uh, comparable research in other contexts. And finally, as we said, uh, uh, there was lack of empirical uh, data, and therefore we believe that uh, this will enhance our understanding with a new empirical uh, driven approach uh, about uh, the contribution of uh, uh, the Athens games to uh, how, for example, social legacies are uh, promoted and made visible in uh, contemporary Athens. And this case study will be used uh, as um, as uh, for example a reference in the future in order to uh, uh, identify similar approaches for uh, uh, host cities that uh, perhaps uh, have some uh, uh, Olympic hosting aspirations. Uh, so thank you for uh, for your attention.
2: Thank you, uh, Nikki and Jeff. Um, so we're gonna have about 10 minutes for questions. Um, and then uh don't worry, we're not gonna shorten the break by to, to just five minutes. Uh, we'll still have a 10-minute break then uh before resuming uh for the second panel. Um so I know that uh, there are a few questions already, um, but before that, I did just wanna share um Luke's apologies that as he did say he has to go teach some fourteen-year-olds about the Treaty of Versailles, um, but he does say that if anyone has any questions, you're welcome to email him directly or um, tweet at him um, with his Twitter handle at Dr. L. J. Harris. Um, so, uh, so uh, Ian, if you could, oh, you are—you've um, got your visual up good. Uh, I've got the questions kind of blocking my screen now, um, but I wanted to ask. Um, first uh, I'll kind of combine two questions for Ian um, was whether you have encountered other private collectors or collections um, with respect to paralympic history in the UK or elsewhere um, and is there a plan for what will happen with your oral histories you've done and your extended collection um, and perhaps any of these other kind of private collections you've seen up you know after the your project's been completed
4: um. Mm, I'll take those. I'll I'll do those separately. I guess the the first one about other collections, not that I know of in terms of what I would call sort of academics or historians, but yes, in terms of people who've been involved in the movement for many many years. Um, So an example is an old friend of mine, Tony Sainsbury. was chef de mission going back to the 1980s for the British team, et cetera, um, and went all the way up till, I think he was the village manager for London 2012. So he had a huge collection, although I do know that he donated a huge number of boxes to IPC and also a huge number to the British Wheelchair Sports Foundation, which will now probably be in the Aylesbury uh, archives which is, I think, where all the BWSF stuff is. Um, Yeah, and I've encountered other people. Uh, There was one guy, I can't remember his name now, in Belgium, who I went to visit, who literally had the whole of the Belgian Paralympic Archive in in his living room. Um, It's now moved to a purpose-built sports museum in in Belgium. Um, But at the time... It was fantastic for me because i just went with my scanner and went mad for about three days i think um so there are people out there unfortunately sort of as with the early games you know those people are passing into history shall we say what will happen then to their archives eh, who knows is is the honest answer unless people can track them down and and nail them down to say, you know, at least put something in your will to say, I want all of this stuff to go here or there. Um, so there are people out there, but, you know, tracking them down and making sure all that stuff doesn't disappear with them is, is a difficult task. Um, The second question was was about the the bid that we've put in. I mean, I should say it's still at review stage, so it's not definitely going to happen yet. Um, But what I did build into the bid deliberately was that the website for the project would be hosted from day one by the National Paralympic Heritage Trust. And so all of the... um, the files, the PDFs of all of the interviews, etc., would go onto that website. And once the project ends, we'll continue and be freely available then on that website for future historians, etc., or anybody with an interest to um, access and use as they see fit. There's also been some question and
2: discussion uh, between Helena and and uh, Jeff for, for everyone to see with that question. Um, I'll uh, take the uh, prerogative as the chair to ask uh, a question to uh, both of our um, both of our panelists still here, or the three of you for the two, two papers, um, which I know there's a little bit of mentioning this, but I guess if you could um, really pick, like what do you really wish has, you know, would be in the archives that, that isn't, you know, what do you wish that people would have saved from those organizations, from those archives, you know, that you kind of just like, oh, if I really have these kind of materials, that would be just so great for, you know, this project or one of the many projects or something you wish you could do, but you can't because you don't have those materials.
4: Who do you want to go first?
2: Uh, we can let Nikki uh, and Jeff go first and then and then you, Ian.
6: Okay, Nikki. Yeah, Nikki, do you want to go first, or shall I? Uh,
5: yeah, I will just briefly uh, mention something. Um, for me, that uh, I'm not uh, a transport historian, I think uh, what I found challenging in the process is that uh, perhaps we didn't have uh, a lot of information about uh, the conversations and uh, uh, all the discussions that took place uh, when, uh, for example. Uh, these stakeholders actually were developing the the volunteer program. In one of the interviews, actually, we discovered that uh, uh, one of uh, the the volunteers actually uh, suggested that uh, before the Athens 2004 Games, when there was another attempt from Greece to uh, perhaps host the Games in 1996, there was uh, some attempts from uh, a local newspaper in Greece to actually uh, gather volunteers. And this, I found it very interesting in uh, in the process. Perhaps it would have been good to to be also part of uh, the archives for us to know all the uh, situation and uh, how all the the program evolved.
6: Yeah, I would just, yeah, I would reiterate that. I think the committee meeting, I think the issues around embargo, uh, around um, the time period, I think that is probably would need to be looked at by the study center, but, you know, I think that would have helped. A lot, certainly. Um, I mean, even though, you know, there are limitations with, you know, uh, minutes and committee meeting minutes and that kind of thing. I think some sort of um, a a timeline of some of the conversations or the key processes that were involved in that, you know, because that's what what the, the meeting minutes would have revealed. I mean, subsequently, the information has come to light through the interviews in a lot more detail, but it could have been a really Easy way for us to get a sense of how this um, unfolded in the project. So I think that would be a, a useful kind of recommendation to kind of go back to the uh, to the IOC. I know lots of sport archives around the country, and they don't have the same sort of um, embargo pressures. Um, and even if you look at the National Olympic Committee level stuff, it's a very mixed picture. Some are very very happy for you to um, have open access to all of their archives. Um, you know, and they have kind of a blank slate, but there is, with the Olympic Studies collection, they they do play their cards quite close to their chest.
1: Okay, Ian?
4: Yeah. Um, I guess, particularly for the early Games, my wish would have been that they'd kept more accurate records, particularly of results, etc. I mean, I know for Tokyo 1964, only the first six are available in each event. So, you know, for athletes who represented their country in those early games, they may never, ever get recognised because there's no record of them actually having uh, participated at the Games. Even if, you know, if you've been a Paralympian, the same as Olympian in the UK, you want that recognition and, you you, you know, you, you deserve it. Um, but if you don't exist anywhere on paper to prove it, and and maybe you've already passed away, it's it's impossible. Um, So, you know, I think better record keeping, although I do understand, uh, you know, working in critical disability studies as I do, I do understand that, you know, there's a strong link between the value placed on people with disability and the things they do and different points in history.
7: Uh, Thank you. Uh, Raph, you've got a question? Hi, Heather. I'm just trying to kind of draw together themes from the two papers, really. And one of the things that seems to be coming through is um, a sort of tension almost about accessibility of records. Um, And I was struck by um, what um, kind of I think it was Jeff who was saying sort of tensions with archivists wanting us as researchers to know what we want or, or what we want to find and how we're going to use it before we actually know what's in the collection. Um, so maybe um, if you could say a little bit more about that, that might be interesting. And then, um, Ian, um, kind of from your perspective, obviously, being an individual gathering archival material um it's it's great for you and it's obviously been really valuable for your research um you're kind of you almost sort of has have a unique positionality there as a as a researcher and an archivist um at the same time um is there ever a kind of tension in your mind about um sort of how accessible that material is to to other researchers uh, to other researchers um, versus kind of um, almost wanting to keep hold of it because um, of that kind of excitement about having amassed that collection. Jeff, do you
1: want to go first? So could you just recap the last part, ref?
7: Uh, well the last part was aimed at Ian really. Um, but it's it was yeah, uh was the was a kind of uh, question for Ian. But I suppose for for you and um for you and um and Nikki, um it was kind of about could you talk a little bit more about those those tensions about um the about being a researcher and kind of maybe encountering difficulties with the archivist um in terms of them wanting you to know or to have kind of control over the research and the outcomes? Yeah. Which I, was something that you mentioned in your paper, I think.
6: Yeah, it was. Yeah. I mean, they were very, um, they almost took exemption more to the, the presentation of our project, the what was on our PowerPoint, what kind of images we were using on our PowerPoint than what was the, but they, with the archives, they, they, you know, they have this um, for educational purposes. They have um, sort of, they're a little bit more open if you are using it for a paper, but nonetheless, they still are very keen for you to specify Ah, uh, the use and the explanation. I mean, oh, I say this. There were these tensions. I mean, the, the the tone of the discussion was obviously friendly and supportive, and they did indicate they have indicated should we need or find uh, anything specific um, that wasn't in the article that they would need, for example, to release the embargo for. Um, that that was something that they could potentially do for us. Um and again i say this because we i mean we were privileged in that we were the we're currently grant holders and i can imagine that this is, wouldn't necessarily be the case for those that were not within the within the system so that was that was kind of very much clear from the discussions we had with them that there is a different you know there is a slight difference in the treatments um, i mean from a from a historian's kind of point of view you, it's just another one of those workarounds that you just go well okay the computer says no in that regard and even though you can you make a case for for the committee meetings, for example, or particular evaluation reports or financial reports, which they're a little bit more cagey about the actual, you know, where, where the money is and where the money's gone. Um, you know, I think it's a case you make the strong case, and if they, if they say no, then I mean, you know, it's a pretty definitive answer from the IRC or certainly from the study center. But then, however, our advantage is that we've got these stakeholders and we've got people within, for example, the Hellenic Olympic Committee that we can kind of go the other route and get the information another way, for example. I mean, it's not an ideal situation, but it's certainly, yeah, the the usual historian's detective work, I
1: think. Thanks, Ian.
4: I was waiting to see if Nikki had anything to say. Um, Good question. I guess maybe i'm a bit strange in this sort of fairly combative higher education world that we live in but i've always seen my role as to <sighs> pave the way for other people to build on what i've achieved so far so i i try to be open and as open as and accessible as i can with what i've got um i mean yes i will ask questions you know if somebody if it's a media company wanting to make money out of it that's different to a researcher who wants some information for papers because you know personally it's probably cost me eight to ten thousand pounds of my own money to build the archive that i've got um but I do try and, you know, if, if people need information, I usually readily send it to them if it's for a book or for a paper, et cetera. Um, and just, and, you know, and hopefully people will reciprocate. You know, if they find information that I need, they will give it back to me. Doesn't always happen, unfortunately, but that's the world we live in.
2: Okay. I'd just like to thank all of our panelists, Um, so if anyone, anyone likes to unmute themselves and we can give a round of applause to our panelists today, that would be great.